0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.
1: From MPB Think Radio, this is Now You're Talking with Marshall Ramsey. It's the show about the most interesting people and stories in Mississippi. Well... Today, our guest is no stranger to MPB. He's the host of, been the host of Next Stop Mississippi and the Mississippi Arts Hour, and he's one half of Howl and Mouse, the legendary Jackson Food, Drink, and Music Emporium, and he's also the executive director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm talking about none other than Malcolm White, and we will talk to him about his latest book, The Artful Evolution of Howl and Mouse. Also, Michelle and I will chat about the latest headlines and the water cooler conversations. And now you can be part of today's show as well. You can give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email me at marshall at mpbonline.org. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. We'll be right back after the
0: news. You're listening to Now You're Talking with Marshall Ramsey on MPB Think Radio.
1: All right, welcome back. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. Hey, look, today we've got a great show ahead of us. we got Mississippi restaurateur, promoter, arts advocate, all-around renaissance man. I think that's probably fair. Malcolm White is with us. You know Malcolm. Oh, gosh, he's on MVB here more than I am. But anyway, he's in the studio. We're going to talk about that and talk about his new book, The Artful Evolution of and Mouth. Fantastic book. Ginger Williams Cook did the illustrations on it. Robert St. John wrote The Ford. I would read it over the weekend. I, it's fantastic. We'll talk about that, too. And we're going to also tape him a little bit later today for Conversations, the TV show. So that Malcolm's dressed up. I just and I can't you know, wait. Yeah. He looked really nice. I I'm just excited. Let you know, he is, looks sharp for radio. But he
2: always looks sharp. So this is nothing well, that's new. True. That's
1: true. Well, it's the new Malcolm. You know, now that he's like public servant Malcolm, he's oh, always Lord. Look, looking sharp. Uh, Glad right, he's in the audience. Of course, a lot of us are still... Uh, recovering, yes. we'll, we'll talk about that in the water cooler segment, yes. which, of course, I know you have the sound effect blue, for Blue, blue, blue. Yeah, there, there it is right there. there the new go. one.
2: The new <laughs> Which, by the way, um, happy day after Easter. Yes, happy day after Easter, which, you and we, Malcolm. and. Yeah, uh, this is the time when
1: you run, you mow your yard, and you hit eggs that the kids uh, did not find, and they shoot up against the wall, or the dogs come in after finding, like, three-day-old
2: eggs. Oh, so my God. I hope not. Too. I hope not. Yeah,
1: it makes them a little bit gassy. But anyway. Did you have uh, to
2: sit through the Easter egg, uh, what, the Easter Speeches in church. <laughs> I think they're still going on. Because, <laughs> you know, I mean,
1: seriously, all the all the preachers out there are thinking, this is my time to shine. Because <laughs> everybody is actually in the audience today, so I can do a good job. So we
2: go. I laugh, but it's so cute. You know, they're so nervous and they go up there and they either sing a song or they do a speech that they've practiced for like three weeks. <laughs>
1: Yeah, about to say, if I got up there and sang a song, it would not be a holy moment. And People the parent, like gnashing
2: of teeth. Well, it's funny, yesterday with me, Ooh. you know what parent is with what child, because when the child gets up and goes to the mic, here comes the parent with the big tablet. Oh, yeah, uh, Oh yeah, The t- kids. tablet yeah, 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 It's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. And everyone in I church laughed. I you are talking about the preachers. No. Yeah, the <laughs> kids. Yeah. Everyone laughed, because one day it got up in front, he was like, I'm sorry, excuse me, I'm sorry, excuse me. He was like right in the front. Oh, I know. and It, it was so funny. It's,
1: well, it's always funny when you see the parents, they buy like the big screen TV <laughs> tablets, so when they hold it up... To try Try to take a picture, it blocks out half the people from it being does, able to see the does. whole altar.
2: Speaking of parent, I am a proud parent today. My daughter is here. Um see. she is job shadowing me today. Really? Jordan McAdoo say hello. Hi. <laughs> does she sound happy to be here? Her She's mommy's a,
1: job. She sounds like, Oh, I got the day off and I had to get up early. That's what
2: it sounded exactly. like. Exactly. Yeah. So what's your name and uh mm-hmm. what school do you go to? My name is Jordan McAdoo, and I go to Southwood Middle School. Okay. There you go. She has a deep voice, doesn't she? She does, and she's also about as tall as I am, She too. is. She's taller than me. Yeah. Uh, speaking of tall, yesterday, that game, that uh, MSU basketball game.
1: That was an interesting segue. Good job. It was, because... Uh, yeah, um, Malcolm and I are just, we've been talking about that. I mean, <laughs> how can your heart be broken and still be, pr- you know, be proud at the same time? It's you like, know what? It's
2: like, um, I told you earlier, the game brought back... Horrible memories for me because my daughter's team lost the championship game and I was going to be vindicated through um, MSU. So MSU was going to vindicate me for my daughter you know, not winning the championship game. And it was like two losses in one year. I can't do it. I really cried last night. I had nightmares. I couldn't sleep. I don't know what's going on with them. They do right make now. medication for that. They do. They really I do. I need some.
1: But I got to tell you, and I, and I feel for number one, um, I'm really, really proud of this team. Yes, They're yes. some fine young women. They really are just awesome, mm-hmm. awesome young women. Uh, but I know. I mean, I've, I've been a Pulitzer finalist twice, mm-hmm. which means that I almost won the Pulitzer Prize one time missed by a vote, and I can tell you, you get that close, and you don't know if you're ever going to get back or not. Right, right. And you know, and a lot of them are seniors, so I mean, this is obviously it for them. And and but I, Ooh. you know, just Twitter last night, you could just all suddenly everybody was like screaming at the top of their lungs. Cause it hurt. It was. Hurt. So it, was close.
2: it was a. And because of the great first half, you know, the awesome first half. Yeah. And you know, you watch this game unfold before your eyes, and that last shot. I call her Wakanda of she right made. Right after the tackle. Yes. That last shot, you just knew it wasn't going in. We were going in overtime. And I was upset. I'm like, I can't go through another, you know, quarter of or half of whatever you call it, of this. And then it went in.
1: I know. I mean, you can't. You know, it's hard to get mad about the, the referees and all that because, honestly, you have to build that into your game. Yeah. But that's still, I didn't know you could tackle in basketball.
2: That you know, was, now we know. Yeah. Malcolm, how do you feel about the game?
0: Uh, well, I'm very sorry that the, the bulldog, Lady Bulldogs did not win, uh, but how amazing is it that they were there? Yes, uh, yes. I'm so proud of Mississippi State and their uh, program, and what about that point .1 tick of the second that we had to live through after the kids had already yeah. gone to the dressing room? That I was know. agonizing. Yeah, it really was. It uh, was all confusing to me. It was... Uh, Right. <laughs> that was too. That was very unfortunate. That yes. was
1: very unfortunate. I mean, I've always said the last minute of a basketball game is last about ten years. Right. <laughs> but th- that was just like somebody. Oh, here's a little salt. Oh. Here's your wound. Let's yeah. just rub it in there really hard.
0: <laughs> Ugh. painful. It was. It was tough. It so was. anyway,
1: but um, wow. Like I said, what a, what a year. What a team. What, a, what yes. a team. Yeah, and you know all the individual stories too. Hmm. Oh yeah, I'm going to school. I'm playing basketball. Oh yeah, and I'm raising a kid. You know, you're just exactly. like okay. I can, I you know, I mean, my wife was out all last week. She was out of town, so I was single parenting, and um, I literally. Lost the ability to speak English by the end of the week. I was so tired. Now and I you can
2: identify the, with us. Is,
1: yes, with the rest of the world. So my respect just went up a notch. But, yeah, I was just thrilled when the kids would get to school with the underwear on the inside of their pants and on the outside. You know? Oh, my goodness. You were kind of like, okay, good. You got your homework done. Yay. You're, oh, you hadn't eaten in three days. Okay, well, don't worry. Twinkies. Here you go. Pop Tarts. You can survive a couple we, days we, on that. we
2: were talking about that yesterday, how fathers um, uh, raise kind of like babysit, quote, unquote. You know, oh, no, if no, they no, hear no. noise. Oh, don't what don't you, you th- ever
1: say that again, because my wife told me a long time ago yeah, that fathers matter. do not babysit exactly. their own children.
2: <laughs> well, you know, men yeah. in their minds, they think they're watching their kids. You know, it's the mom's job. But some men say, well, you know, you no. want me to keep the kids? Oh, my God. No, you no, know, no,
1: no, no. I love my kids. They're great. <laughs> I just was well, there was just a lot of moving pieces. And oh, yeah, by the way, I had to do a TV show and radio show. And I went on a field trip and chaperoned fifth graders.
2: You had an awesome week. Well,
1: <laughs> you know, they, like I said, they make medication for that and too. And you're not bitter. No, no, right. Not at at all. All. Oh, no, 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 because a bus ride for three and a half hours with fifth graders was so much fun. Oh, my God. It was great. Mm. But the last time I did it, though, with my middle son was when Frozen came out. Oh, yeah. And the girl saying, let it go. Like, for three and a half hours, over and over and over and over. Yeah, so oh. I hate Elson. Oh. <laughs> just to let, you know, just to let you know that. But it, so it, tell it, us about it, your it,
2: run this morning. You were saying... Um,
1: well, okay, I've got to back it up. I am yeah. training for a marathon because I'm 50 years old and I'm stupid. And because I want to see if my knees can blow out. That's, that's my goal. And so I did an 18 and about 18 and a half mile run on Saturday. Perfect weather, yeah, spring was weather. was just a great day. Uh, and did Okay. Sunday is was a little sore, got up before church, ran three miles just to get soreness out. So this morning we had a timed mile. So I did it in, what was it, seven hours? I mean, seven hours. Yeah, that's about right. (laughs) Seven minutes and 40 seconds, which is as fast as I've run a mile in about 20 years because, did I mention I'm old? So, um, But I get around to the third lap, and so I'm like at 5.30 on the third lap. And then I realize my son would have beaten me by 35 seconds for four laps. And that because he can run a mile less than five minutes, mm. and I'm sitting there going, "Okay, youth is obviously wasted on the young," <laughs> on that. But it was good. I'm real proud of myself. Very proud good. on the back. There you go. So um,
2: no, well, very good. But my goal is to get faster. Okay. Yeah. Of course. And when is the marathon again? So we can. Uh, it's,
1: it's in May. It's a big the first weekend of May. It's okay. up in Cincinnati. The Flying Pig Marathon. Okay. Which I think is appropriate for me. Um, that's a very well-named marathon for me, because I always said I'd run another marathon when things flew, so there you go.
2: Well, you know, you're going to keep us updated on the progress and the um, journey to the, uh, we call it journey to the marathon. Yeah, here's the
1: latest update. I run slow, so that's, just, that's your latest update. So.
2: And your doctor is going to run
1: this one with you, yeah, right? Yeah, I'm actually running with my cardiologist, which see? I think is perfect. If he falls out, then I, he yeah, I, well, if I fall out, he can save me. Mm-hmm. If he falls out, I can draw a picture exactly. about it. Exactly. It works out pretty
2: well. It does. So that'd
1: be good. So.
2: Well, All right. So why don't we take a break yes. and we'll
1: bring me in Malcolm because he adds a lot to the
2: show. He does. He does. I can't wait to talk like about a the book. He's professional. Ex- he's radio. Yeah, so. he's done this a little bit. You so know. all I have
1: to do is say, Malcolm, how are you? And then there's the rest of the show. Exactly. <laughs> Alright, well we're going to be back in just a second. Like I said, the director of Mississippi Arts Commission, Malcolm White, and his new book, The Artful Evolution of Howlin' Mouse. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio.
2: Radio reading service provides blind Mississippians like me with access to news, books, and sale info that helps me save money. That's my MPB story.
0: You're listening to Now You're Talking with Marshall Ramsey on MPB
1: Think Radio. All right, welcome back. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. Happy Monday, by the way. The Monday after Easter, we're in out spring. Everything's green now. The pollen season's still coming along. At you. Anyway, uh, excited about the show today. We have got a fantastic guest. He is no stranger to the MPB family, and without further delay, let's welcome to the show Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission, Malcolm White. One of many titles that you have had in your illustrious career.
0: This is true. I've yeah. been around a while.
1: Well, and you know, um, and, and I thought I knew you, and I knew you, and I've interviewed you before, and you know, I've known you for a long time. Uh, the book, The Artful Evolution of Hal and Mouse, was not only kind of a history of Jackson and Mississippi, and it just kind of filled in a lot of gaps in the in the 80s and the 90s and the late 20th century, but also, too, told me a lot about you and your life and your relationship with, with Hal, who I miss, and I know you miss very deeply, um, an amazing man, to say the least. So, good job on the book. Thank Congrats. you.
0: I appreciate it. Yes, the... Uh, you know, I, I often say that it's a love story to my brother, yeah. uh, but it it also does frame a lot of uh, the time uh, in, in my industry, the hospitality industry in Mississippi and particularly yeah. in Jackson. And then, you know, our our childhood, our influences, people that that inspired us to do what we did, the journey that got us to Jackson. So it's uh, it covers a lot of ground in there, and there's some few little side stories that I. Uh, threw in for fun. Uh, but uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun writing. It, it was very cathartic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my brother uh, passed five years ago uh, in March. It's been five years? Yeah. Because it seems
1: like yesterday I did that cartoon. It's
0: I know. Like a, it, it's unbelievable. So, oh. um, you know, it, it's helped me to sort of deal with that and, yeah. and kind of put our journey in perspective. And then to talk about our kids and grandkids and you know, those who came before us, who worked with us, and, and to cover as much of that uh, territory as I could.
1: And but that's, you know, and we'll touch on, you, you just opened up about 19 questions for me <laughs> on that, that opening statement. I will say this, though, with your kids now in the business and, and running it, so many businesses can't survive that leap to the next generation. And you're in the middle of it right now. You're doing it.
0: Yeah, 59% of restaurants that open close within the first three years, which is incredible. It is incredible, and the fact that we've been around for 33-plus years says a lot about, uh, you know, the journey. I always used to joke and say that a family business is the most intelligent thing you can do and the most ridiculous thing you can do at the same time. But in our case, it has worked. Uh, We do have the next generation at the helm, and that is, uh, you know, that is rewarding, but I'm also, you know, I'm sort of... Uh, I hate to see it in a way you don't want your yeah. children to grow up and be in the restaurant business, but <laughs> cause you'd like to be able to see your children. again. Yeah. <laughs> but as it turns out, some of them have. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, I've, I've seen so many families that work together where the families don't talk to each other after they are in business together. Cause it's really hard when you mix family and money,
0: really hard, yeah. really hard. And you and, and Hal
1: loved each other up until the very end, even when you wanted to choke each other. <laughs>
0: exactly. And you know, Hal was the older brother and, uh, so we we had a lot of uh, you know conflicts here and there, but we were able to always talk it through. The other people around us suffered more probably than we did. <laughs> yeah. You know the the silence of of what wasn't said, but but we were able to, to to navigate all of that, and we loved each other. We were best friends. We were inseparable. You know we we grew up um, as I've told you before. We lost our mother early to uh, melanoma cancer, which you are very familiar with. Thank you for the good work that you do in that arena, no. but but we lost uh, our mother when I was three and Hal was five, so our journey uh, sort of began there with, you know, being raised by a community, by a village, if you would, of extended family and friends who helped take care of us until my father remarried uh, many years later. So a lot of that's in the book, you know, the, the role of grandparents comes in very strongly. I, I think... I meet people who were raised by their grandparents and I have a lot in common with them, you know.
1: It, it just uh, the part in there you wrote about having fleeting memories of your mom, about how tired she was, and you remembered that she was failing, um, but you were thankful that you didn't really have real strong memories of how bad it was at the end.
0: Whew. Yeah, yeah, that's I true. I, uh, I, I, I'm i often frustrated that I can't remember her any more clearly than I can, B- but then I am grateful that I don't recall the suffering I I recently, uh, recently in the last 10 years, found a, a trunk full of uh, correspondence between my father, my mother, and her doctor in New Orleans. Wow. And, and I was able to literally write uh, that history from the time she was diagnosed until she passed. And that, again, was cathartic and helpful, but painful at the same time. So I, I feel like I know a lot more about that without having actually lived through it.
1: It's um... – and not to continue on too much with this, it just uh, the treatment back then was so different than it is today, and it was so, it's difficult now, but it must have been really tough. And it says a lot about your dad, too, because his nickname was War Daddy.
0: War Daddy. He that, that's coached. scary. <laughs> well, he came out of the military. Okay. Uh, he enlisted, and in, in, while he was still in college, he dropped out of college, went into the military, served his four years, came home, and he coached like The military. He was very hard on the kids. Mm -hmm. He was uh, uh, very disciplined, very organized, very demanding. And so they attached the name War Daddy to signify his military training. Okay. So if you Google War Daddy, it will literally come up. Uh, a bit about my father, Harold White. Wow. Wow. <laughs> now,
1: the ampersand in Helen Mowes is your brother, Brad. Yes. And he actually
0: coached for a while, too. He did. Yeah. He did. We we grew up, you know, coaches, kids. We, uh, we, we went on the trips. We went to practice. We kept the stadium clean. We organized the, the concession stands. We washed the uh, the, the jerseys and the clothing. We grew up there in the stadium. My dad coached basketball uh, and football, but, uh, you know, all three of us played football. Uh, the Ambersand included Hal and I both played at Northeast community Mm -hmm. college where my dad was president and where he had reconstituted football. Northeast did not play football for a number of years, uh, and, and when my dad became president in 65, one of the things he wanted to do was to create campus life, uh, and, and Northeast was a commuter college. So he built dormitories, he reconstituted a football team, he brought back the cheerleaders and the band and the campus living. And, and so a lot of that was reflective of the, the way that we had grown up on the Perkingston campus.
1: I, 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 spoke up there not too long ago and it was he's still well-remembered up there. And somebody said, oh, yeah, you know Malcolm White? And I said, yeah, how can you not know Malcolm White? And they're like, he used to live about 100 yards from this spot. <laughs> I was like, wow, where's the
0: marker? You know, you need to get a marker on that. The marker's in the book. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Born and raised in Stone County. I mean, you kind of moved all around, didn't you? You've lived all around the state.
0: Uh, we did. Uh, we were born and raised in uh, the Piney Woods. Mm-hmm. We were born in Hattiesburg, raised in Perkingston and Wiggins because of my mom's demise, we spent summers in wiggins with my grandparents and then they lived with us during the school year in perkingston yeah we left there in 65 moved to boonville which is the very opposite end of the state uh, and uh you know we stayed there i stayed there until about 72 and then I I went to Northeast. And then I began to really move around, and I yeah. I I went to Starkville, I went to Oxford, I went to Hattiesburg, uh, I lived in California, I went to D.C. in the summers, I lived in New Orleans, and but ultimately, it was obvious to me that my uh, my destiny was to return home to come back to Mississippi.
1: Well, and you know, and I'm I'm reading in the book, and it's, it's like you know, when y'all were young, you're sitting, here, you and How are messing around making sauces.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, food was in the cards pretty early, wasn't it? It was, and I think that's a combination of being invited into a commercial kitchen on campus at Perkinston, uh, and because of the time we spent with our grandparents. Yeah. I mean, grandmothers in the 1950s spent most of their time in the kitchen. Right. So that's where we were. So we were making sauces, making food. Thelma Andrews was the great chef. At Perkingston, African-American gentleman who was very noble and courageous and kind. And he invited Hal and I into the kitchen and, and let us fool around with the equipment, helped him cook. He spent time talking to us. At the time, we had no idea that Thelma Andrews was a chef, that he was going to be a great influence on us. But the school had barbecues, uh, shrimp boils. They had all of these activities Uh, Saturday mornings was pancake uh, cooking in the kitchen, and we were able and invited to participate in all this. So that had a great amount of influence. Then my mother's father, Malcolm, my name's sake, Malcolm Stewart, uh, was a health inspector, and he inspected all restaurants, hotels, motels, and dairies from Hattiesburg south to the coast. And during this period, Uh, before my father remarried and we were living basically with our grandparents, Hal and I would go with my grandfather on these inspections and he would take us to all these restaurants and drop us off like the California sandwich shop in in Hattiesburg and, 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 and all of these great eateries on the coast and he would just drop us off there and these people would look after us until he could finish his rounds and then he would pick us up. And I think those things are all a combination of how we ended up directed toward food and hospitality. And then there were the New Orleans years, but that's another chapter.
1: Exactly. Ginger Williams Cook did the did the art for the artful evolution of Howlin' Mouse. Fantastic. I mean, as an artist, I'm just loving looking at every picture because it's like so much deep. She captures so much emotion and detail, and you can almost smell and, and hear you know, the, when you're in there. One of the things, though, that I was kind of geeking out about, about the book, was Hal's, Hal's recipe cards. Yeah. What a nice addition to the book.
0: Thank you. I I don't know how this began, but at some point, my brother... And they're
1: well-worn, too, I might <laughs> add.
0: ...began writing his recipes on these 5 by 7 index cards, and he would catalog them. And we still have them to this day. And they are stained, and they are uh, old, and they're torn and tattered and bent over, uh, but we were able to use some of them in the layout, and I, I credit uh, University Press in Mississippi for creating a beautiful book with Ginger's amazing art and these recipe cards in a fabulous uh, layout. They just did a, a, a marvelous job, and I can't say enough about Ginger, who 10 years ago was in Howlin' sketching at the 25th anniversary of House, and I went over to her and looked at her sketches, and we began to talk about her sketches, and that planted the seed that ultimately led to this book. It took a while for us to get to it, but her paintings uh, and her contributions uh, are magnificent, and she grew up coming to House. She tells stories that she lied to her parents when she was Underaged and would get in Hal and Mouse to hear certain bands and to go to concerts, and, and that she has remained loyal, and her family and her kids now hang out there. So it, so it's quite a family story.
1: That's not going to get you in trouble with any inspectors or anything that, 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 <laughs> that somebody I'm not already had, in th- trouble th- with? Well, no. that's a good point. All right, okay. Well, I just didn't want you just, you know, I mean, I love Hal and Mouse now. Red beans <laughs> and rice, my favorite, definitely. And the gumbo. God, Hal's gumbo was so good.
0: This is the thing I say about Hal's artistry. Yeah, He was a one-pot wizard. Anything that was a single pot, whether it was a gumbo, red beans and rice, a stew, a soup, he was masterful. Yeah, And so were my grandparents because we were poor and we made a lot of one-pot dishes. Chicken and dumplings, uh, Irish stews, beef stew, uh, meatballs for spaghetti. I mean, we grew up uh, making and eating and watching the creation of these one-pot dishes, and Hal just nailed it. There is no other cook or chef who has ever donned an apron in this part of the world who could make a better soup than my brother Hal.
1: I, I agree right here. My hand <laughs> my hand is up right now. There's, you know, you kind of talk about the the beginnings of Hal and Mal's, and of course we're talking with Malcolm White right now, an executive director of the Mississippi Arts Commission, but also the Mal and Hal and Mal's. Um, It's like his career had to get started. Your career had to get started. The building had to be built back in the the 20s when it was built. Everything kind of just came together. Kind of give a little quick history of him and you and the building and how everything just kind of melded together in in the mid-80s.
0: Well, uh, I got in the restaurant business in 1974 when I moved from California to Hattiesburg and needed a job. My dad was sick and tired of paying for my college education that I would not complete So he said, son, if you go back to school, this is on your nickel. So I had to get a job. And my cousin, uh, uh, Mike Carlisle, worked at the Ramada Inn in Hattiesburg and gave me a job as a dishwasher. So that was my first time to ever work in a kitchen. I was 23, 24 years old. Meanwhile, Hal uh, had gone to Mississippi State, been asked to leave (laughs) – Uh, his academics were uh, slightly lacking, had had re-enrolled at Northeast, where he had already gotten a two year A.A. degree. And my father uh, had begun a gigantic uh, vocational technical program at Northeast, and they taught everything from from electrical and plumbing and painting and drafting to hospitality, hotel, motel, restaurant uh, training. So my brother enrolled in the first class of the Northeast Hotel Motel Restaurant School and got a two-year degree. Meanwhile, I was in Hattiesburg learning this business sort of uh, hands-on. He was actually getting a technical degree and learning it from a real chef. And after that, uh, we, we both ended up in New Orleans. I got a job running the Bourbon Orleans Hotel. Hal came down and joined me. We began to talk about We should open up our own place. We were going to places like Tipitina's and Rosie's and Casamento's and Buster Holmes and all these great restaurants in in New Orleans. And we would talk about one of these days we're going to open up our own restaurant. So the idea was there. I came to Jackson in 79 for a one year stint with a guy named Joey Mitchell. And I've been here ever since, but I was able to get the lease uh, on the G, the old GM&O Freight Depot in 1983. The lease was signed by Cliff Finch, governor.
1: Which is the one governor I really wish I could have drawn cartoons about, I, I might bet add. you do. Oh, wow. In the
0: heart-shaped tub? Yes. When he ran for president? hmm mm, What a character. Definitely. But anyway, uh, Hal had gotten out of the hospitality motel, hotel, restaurant business and gone into the oil business and oil and gas. He was a drilling. He was a mud engineer, and he was drilling uh, natural gas wells living in Columbus, Mississippi. And I got this lease on this building. We put the Lamar discotheque in there for a couple of years. The minimum drinking age changed in 83. Suddenly, you, you had to be 21 to go into a to a place that served alcohol. That put the Lamar out of business. I called Hal, and I said, I have the building Why don't you move to Jackson? Meantime, his business was being phased out. He came to Jackson. I got him a job working at Paul's Restaurant on Highway 80 for the glenn family he worked there at night and he I, he and i during the day built a kitchen on the back of the old gym and old freight depot and that was where how Mouse began
1: that building um and we'll talk about it a little bit more that building's got an incredible history but before you open the restaurant and since the, the restaurant started so we'll, we'll can talk about that as well sure. we're talking with of course malcolm white and we'll continue that conversation in just a minute this is now you're talking on mpb think radio As donors, we knew that MPB makes a difference. Felder on MPB Radio was the catalyst that inspired us to include tea production on our blueberry farm. Our business
0: continues to grow. That's, That's our, our MPB, MPB story. You're listening to Now You're Talking with Marshall Ramsey on MPB Think Radio. Welcome back.
1: This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. If you're just tuning in, we've been talking with Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission, Restaurant Tour, and now author. Well, actually, you've been an author for a little bit, Malcolm White. Now, uh, before the break, we were talking a little bit about your past and how you got to where Hal and Mal's began. And, you know, Hal's past, your past, the building's past a little bit. One thing I love about that building was that Elvis actually made deliveries to that building.
0: According to the book.
1: Well, yeah. well, I believe everything I read, so there you go. Why would you lie?
0: That was the lore. That's the lore. That was the lore during the truck driving days.
1: Yeah, pretty cool. And there's like little little bits and pieces about the book, I mean about the building, like uh, when you discovered all these hooks and these like tubes and everything, (laughs) which kind of had a real Stephen uh, (laughs) King-esque. I was like, oh,
0: that's where they hung the bodies. Yeah, exactly. Well, those rooms were used to ripen bananas, and uh, there were two of them. One is now the office. The other uh, was the oyster bar. And when we got the building, they were just these weird little rooms with millions of hook well not millions, but hundreds of hooks screwed into the wooden ceiling, and then these round holes uh, in the exterior walls, and we never had a clue what they were for, never thought about it. We took the hooks out, put them in a box, put them in a storage room, <clears throat> renovated the rooms, and began using one as an oyster bar and one as an office. And many years later, a guy came in for lunch, and he told me that he used to work uh, at the merchant's company who who were the merchant's company was the second real inhabitant. First, it was the GMO freight depot. They had it probably until the fifties from 1927 into the fifties. Then the merchant's company, a food brokering warehouse came in. They had the building all the way into the seventies. And that's when that room, those rooms were used to ripen bananas. They would get Green bananas off of the freight cars that were coming up from Gulfport, which is either the first or second largest banana import uh, harbor in the world, coming out of Central and South America. The bananas would come up, they'd put them on a rail, they'd rail them up to Jackson, they'd come to the warehouse, they'd take them off, and they'd hang them in these rooms in these full, you know, six-foot-long green banana uh, stalks, and they would hang them and then pump in these gases To ripen them. And that's what the holes were for, and the hooks were for the banana stalks.
1: Somebody that used to work work in the warehouse came in one day and told you all this because you're like,
0: you had no clue. I was, you're kidding. He just began to tell the story. About working there as a, as a youngster. Yeah. And, and, and that helped fill in that particular mystery for us. Then we got the hooks back out. So now I know where the hooks are.
1: Yeah, one of the great hold my beer moments was how they turned it from a one story building into a two story building. Wasn't that I
0: remarkable? Mean, what yeah. an architectural feat.
1: <laughs> yeah, so basically they get up under it and jack the roof up and then brick it up and then set the roof back down.
0: They, that's right. It was yeah, unbelievable. And beer. I discovered that nugget while researching uh, for this book uh, in the archives and history. Uh, department, I was able to go over there and just dig through uh, all of the the history uh, of the building of the GM&O Freight Depot, the merchant's company. It was so much fun uh, unearthing that particular story.
1: You know, one of the things that you and I were talking a little bit before we were on the air, and I've loved living in Jackson and Mississippi, but in Jackson in particular is the fact that for a city this size, we have some of the best restaurants. And you know, you said something earlier in the show, saying that you know that back in the fifties, that grandmothers cooked all the time and everything like that. There really wasn't much of a restaurant business other than outside of a few Greek families, were there?
0: Right. Uh, it, well, it was the Greek immigrants, the Italian immigrants, and the Irish immigrants yeah. who, who started the restaurants that we now think of as many the, famous the names that are still there: Primo's, yeah. um, uh, Lusco's. Um, you Mayflower. Know, the Mayflower, yeah. the Conturas family, and and the Fisherman's Wharf—all of these restaurants um, were started by these immigrants. And and Mr. Mike told me a long time ago who ran the Mayflower for a very long time. I asked him why that was, and he said because of the language barrier that a lot of these immigrants didn't speak. Uh, English very well, so they were given jobs in the kitchen so that they didn't interact with the customers, and so they became great dishwashers, great cooks, great Mm -hmm. chefs, and so they they sort of started at the back of the house and then ended up buying the restaurants and starting their own.
1: That's cool. Let's say least. Um when y'all decided to do the restaurant course, you kind of didn't just say, okay, we're going to serve really good food, which you did, but you also said, we're going to make this a cultural experience as well. I mean, arts has have always been a big part of Howlin' Miles. It's, I mean, the music scene, writers, artists, all coming through that building.
0: Well, from the very beginning, we sublet the parts of the building that we didn't need to artists. There's a story in there called The Artist Upstairs and Down, and to this day, we have Richard Kelso, who still has his studio there. Uh, John Maxwell used to have his writing studio there. Uh, San- P. Sanders, Sandy McNeil had her studio there. Sergio Fernandez has a recording studio there. Uh, we have always had uh, Bobby Pennebaker, the now dean of the uh, art department Incredible at Belhaven University, yeah. had a studio there. Hubert Worley, the photographer, had a studio there. And on and on. Carol Pigott had a painting studio there. So we've always associated with artists, uh, and we've always presented art on our stages, whether it was theater, live music, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, so, so we've already we've always thought of that as a part of our business formula.
1: You know, Arden Barnett was part of it too, helped you books and of course he does Ardenland now. But I mean, talk about some of the acts that you've had come through because you've had some incredibly huge names that have come yeah. through your restaurant.
0: Well, we started with Albert King. Okay, which that's is a not pretty a bad way. that's a pretty good way to start. And certainly BB has played there several times. Yeah. Uh Lionel Hampton played there, Mose Allison played there, the Counting Crows played there. Um, Kevin Costner is playing yeah, there. You, you, everybody has their own every, every
1: 45-year-old woman can still tell you about that <laughs> night, too. Because, I mean, it's like I still hear people talking about that.
0: Right. Tiny Tim.
1: Yeah. Who was who was actually the grand marshal for the parade. He
0: was. And we'll he talk was, about the parade in a second, but Tiny amazing. Tim.
1: And he was, like, really a decent guy, too. Great
0: guy and, and a fabulous entertainer. Very committed to his art form. Yeah. people thought, A lot of people laughed at him. Ukulele. And he was he, he let them laugh all the way to the bank. Uh, but he got married on The Tonight Show. He, his big hit was Tiptoe Through the Tulips, but what a gentleman and what a fun person to have around. My, my indelible memory is he closed his set on the stage with the Blues Boys. He was down on his back playing his ukulele, to Stairway to Heaven, and the crowd went crazy, and that was Tiny Tim.
1: And, you know, that sort of thing doesn't happen too often,
0: to say uh, the least. Snoop Dogg. Snoop Dogg has played yeah. there a couple times. Um,
1: What's he like? Is he like a decent guy? Or great one? guy.
0: Really? Uh, you know, family in Macomb. Yeah. When he comes home to visit, uh, he he plays a show for us. Great guy, a lot of fun. Um, you know, he, <laughs> he's a kick to be around. He's got quite an entourage. He He's late. He's you know, like, it takes a long time to get from Macomb to Jackson. Uh, but, uh, good guy. Glad I got to work with
1: him. Well, I'm sure some of the performing enhancing drugs that he takes, he probably drove like 20 miles an hour all the way up here. I, I don't imagine. think he drove. I would hope not.
0: <laughs> he just is for a the, yeah,
1: just for the sake of everybody. Uh, that would definitely uh, look at some of the literary names that have come through there. And, and I've, of course, I'm a cartoonist, I have to admit. I remember eating there pretty early on when I, when I moved here, and I look on the wall, and I was like, there's Doug Marlette's name. Well, Doug Marlette, Pulitzer Prize-winning editorial cartoonist and author, and so you've got, like, famous names all over the place in there, on the walls and everything else. Doug came through and, of course, entertained and helped even gave your daughter some art lessons. He
0: did. He, he conducted a workshop for children, and it was fabulous. He had a book he was signing at Lemuria. And, uh, you know, Willie Dixon, the great blues man, came there yeah. for a book signing with his for his book, I Am the Blues. Uh, but, yeah, we've been blessed to have lots of celebrities and, and well-known writers and musicians come through. It's been a lot of fun. We've met some really cool people. We've met a few jerks uh, along the way. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Beth, I remember the night that I introduced Beth Henley uh, to Willie Morris. and Well, not to Willie. They already knew each other. But Beth Henley was there on a night when we had a whole group. Bill Dunlap was there. Willie Morris was there. Uh, Richard Ford was has always been in and out. Barry Hanna has always been in and out. Larry Brown, there's a story in there about a, a wacky book reading he did once upon a time there. But, yeah, it's been great to, to know these guys uh, and to be around them, these ladies. Miss Welty would come in from time to time. What an honor, of course, that she would be there. Uh, but we have had our brushes with the famous and the not so famous. But, but it's been a lot of years, and you know we've been a gathering place. We've always yeah. tried to say that this is where community gathers, this is where culture gathers, this is where art is made, and this is where fun is had. And we've been able to do that for a long time.
1: Yeah, there was a had a recipe. I mean. There was a uh, chapter title. Was it the most memorable? White, I can't remember. Most exactly. talked about. Most talked about. Thank you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Which is
0: me. an old tagline that I stole from the Little Fleurs Restaurant at the uh, Jacksonian Motel. Up on once upon a time.
1: You, um, of course, I was just thinking what a party would be like having Dunlap and Willie Morris there at the same time.
0: Unbelievable. We had we had Willie's sixtieth birthday party there. We had Miss Welty's ninetieth. Mm-hmm. Uh, Willie and Joanne's wedding reception was there. We've hosted some amazing gatherings. Uh, we had the launch of the Southern uh, uh, the Southern Cultural uh, Encyclopedia there. Uh, we've had John Grisham's first book signing was at Howlin' Mouse because no one knew who he was and no bookstore wanted to host him, so we agreed to allow him to come in and, and do a book signing. Uh, and thankfully I do have one of those I about to say, you didn't get one originally though, cause you no. didn't, you didn't go to it. No, I didn't. No, no, but, I was there. Oh, you were there. Okay. I worked okay. it, but I wasn't smart enough to buy a book. He later gave me a signed copy. But I love the thinking of why they
1: had it there because thinking, well, a lot of his buddies are legislators and we'll sell a lot of alcohol.
0: Yeah. So Lynn Clark, who then ran the bookworm, uh, who's a realtor now. Uh, talked me into doing this and i, I first i was reluctant I, I i barely knew john i didn't think anybody would buy his book either and she said well malcolm you should do this because all his legislative le- legislator friends will come and they'll all buy drinks and i was like okay fine we'll do it you sold me and of
1: course the rest is history on that right. <laughs> that is awesome um the Elvis painting the Elvis Velvet Elvis that's right by the bathrooms uh you had one gentleman that was a little bit angry about the flag the way you had it set up on on the yes, painting yes yeah. a
0: veteran yeah. um uh, and, and he at first respectfully called me out on yeah. the way that I had the American flag draped over the Velvet Elvis and then he got a little agitated and uh sort of got after me saying that it was an improper display of the american flag and that i should take it down and that bunting was the appropriate uh material for that and he then he became indignant and sort of angry and i had to ask him to leave and it was unfortunate but you know as i say one man's uh some so anarchy is one man's <laughs> art is another man's anarchy. Uh, but, you know, that's just how we th- feel like, you know, addressing Elvis. We thought he was a great patriot. Right. You know, great influence, a great Mississippian. And we had no problem. The flag still is draped exactly the way it was back when the gentleman uh, took, took uh, his, his angst out on me. But anyway, we survived that. Once I'll tell you another great story about uh, people being all angry. Uh, During the flag debacle, uh, when we were attempting to change the flag, we had several protesters, and they would come during lunch, and they would disrupt the lunch and start screaming and yelling and calling me names, and they put flyers all out in the parking lot, referred to me as Malcolm X. White. Malcolm
1: X. White. I appreciate it. Did that. you get a hat made up like that? <laughs> no, I that, did. Not. That
0: would have been really nice. All
1: right, we'll continue this conversation with Executive Director of Mississippi Arts Commission and Restaurant and Author Malcolm White. The new book is The Artful Evolution of Howl and Mouse. And I'll tell you what, I, everybody loves a parade. We'll talk about the parade next. This is Now You're Talking on MPV Think Radio.
2: The digital media workshop for high school students was amazing. I learned new skills, and now I'm pursuing a career in film production. That's my MPB story.
0: You're listening to Now You're Talking with Marshall Ramsey on MPB Think Radio. Welcome back to
1: Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host Marshall Ramsey. Happy Monday! Thanks. And if you're just joining us, we've been talking with author and restaurateur Malcolm White about his life and his new book, The Artful Evolution of Howlin' Mouse. Speaking of evolution, um, one of the biggest in the country every year, St. Patty's Day Parade is now the Hal's St. Patty Stadium, which you changed the name in honor of Hal, what was it, two, three years ago? Yeah, three years ago. Um, absolutely fantastic event, a lot of fun. Uh, it started off basically making everybody who drove a car at rush hour angry. <laughs> <laughs> did. How, how did it get started? I know Rod Coffin had a part in this, but tell us the story how this parade got started, because it's really turned into a huge event. And uh, I don't think it kind of
0: happened by accident, didn't it? Sort of. We, I was running George Street Grocery at the time. The year is 1983. Um, And we'd been having these St. Paddy's parties and they were very successful and it was standing room only. And I thought, well, you know, this, this could be added on to, I had grown up on the coast, lived in New Orleans. I love parades. I love celebrations. Everything uh, cultural is celebrated and, 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 In that part of the world, Jackson, not so much. You know, what I saw when I came to Jackson in 1979 was a Dixie National Rodeo Parade and a Christmas parade and the Jackson State Homecoming Parade, the state fair. And that was about it. Yeah. So I knew there was a lot of room here for uh, creative ideas and celebrations. So I saw this success in these parties as a possibility to do a St. Paddy's parade. My first idea was a pub crawl, but unfortunately there were only three pubs in Jackson. At
1: That's time. a lot of crawling. It's a long way to crawl out <laughs> the exactly. Lakeland
0: drive to poets. So, but I did go to CS's and asked Pat Bolton, did he want to, if he wanted to participate and he said, yes. So the idea of, of crawling from pub to pub wasn't going to happen. So I thought at least we'll start at a pub and end into the pub. So we, Pat said we could start at CS's, and Joey Mitchell, who then owned George Street, So we can end it at George Street. So I uh, was sitting at the bar one day uh, in the afternoon talking to Cotton Baranich, and in walks Rod Cawthon, my friend, who was a columnist for the Clarion-Ledger. And we visit for a while, and he says, what you've been up to? I had recently left George Street as the full-time manager and had started my production company, Malcolm White Productions, and basically was starving to death. Uh, because I had no income, and I was looking for ideas to promote. And he said, what have you been working on, and what's happening? And I shared with him that one of the ideas that I'd been thinking about was this St. Patrick's Day parade. And we visited about a little while, and then he left, and I left. And the next day, his column was all about me organizing a St. Patrick's parade. Uh, and And so I was stuck. You were on the hook. I was on the hook. So I instantly went into... Promoter mode and begin organizing this parade. I called Jill Connor Brown on the phone, who was a great friend, and I said, "Jill, I'm going to have a St. Patrick's parade on March 17th." She said, "Great, I'll be a sweet potato queen," and the rest is history. history. Yeah, (laughs) and she and my then wife Vivian were sweet potato queens, and we. I began calling all of my friends and saying we're having a parade. We got the Blues Boys. We got this one and that one, and people showed up. Uh, I applied for a permit uh, on the 17th of of, uh, of March, which is St. Patrick's Day. It happened that it was on a Thursday, and the city gave me a permit for 4.30 through the downtown rush hour. Uh, to, <laughs> and here comes this gaggle of, of intoxicated friends of mine leaving CSs, uh, Lieutenant Governor Brad Dye was in the audience. Oh, I have nice. a photograph to prove it. He was happy houring at the <laughs> nice. at, at, uh, CS's. We parade down to Capitol Street, and there are thousands of people in cars honking their horns, waving their arms. We thought it was admiration. It turns out they were very upset. They were trying to get home, and we had shut down rush hour traffic. So after the event, we 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 ended up at George Street. The Blues Boys played on their float. We created the street party aspect. It was a huge crowds, a great day. But the news w- was about how did we get a permit on a Thursday and, and clog up rush hour traffic. And for days, if not a whole week, this news story lived and we milked it for everything it was worth, trying to figure out how the Jackson Police Department and the city of Jackson had given us a permit for this crazy parade. So, we begin to announce our plans for the next year. Exactly. You know, being the good promoter that I am.
1: Exactly, because, you know, there's no such thing as bad publicity. Zero. And as long you s- as they spell did your Did you switch right. it to Saturday the next year? Of course. Of course. My okay. deal
0: with the city is I'll never <laughs> ask for a permit during the during week. rush hour. Always.
1: <laughs> and that was back in the day when there were like a lot more people downtown trying to get out of Dodge. Many, too.
0: many more. It was quite a scene. So
1: anyway, we had a captive audience. <laughs> a lot of and, people thought you were number one because they would <laughs> lift up one finger towards you, I'm sure. you so got a lot of that. You
0: got a lot of that.
1: Um, we got about a minute or two. Just, I mean, you know, you've made a big shift in your life. you have now into public service. You know, the restaurant's moved into another generation. What's, what's the 21st century uh, going to happen for Hell and
0: well, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Hallam House. We've been renting that building since 1983. We've paid over a million dollars in rent and a half million in, in improvements, and we don't own the building. We we now have a opportunity to buy the building. We still have, if you read the chapter on taxes and the tax man, we still have an outstanding issue about property taxes, which the county wants us to pay, which we say we don't own. We've never owned any property. We hope to get that resolved, yeah. buy the building, and renovate it and and com- Complete the development. About half of the upstairs is still undeveloped. We want to bring more artists, more studios, more apartments in, and keep going. But that's what we hope will happen. Uh, we will see. And you know, beyond that, uh, I'm I'm interested now. I don't create festivals and parades and concerts anymore. I create projects like this book project. This is what I'm interested in now, and I'm interested in being a grandfather. Yeah. And uh, you know, I just bought a an old house in Bell Haven that we, that uh, Kara and I have renovated. I have a two-year-old granddaughter. Uh, my daughter uh, lives around the corner from me. The, my brother's kids are running the restaurant. Uh, you know, that's kind of going its way. We're really pleased with where we are. I'm so delighted to be the executive director of the Mississippi Arts Commission again. And
1: thank you for that too, by the way, because well, you have such a great product to sell. I mean, I'm I mean, so proud of the arts in this state.
0: W- what a great gig and what yeah. an honor to get to serve. This is my second tenure, as you know, and I'm two years into my second tenure, and I couldn't be happier to be back and to be at the Arts Commission working with the great crew and staff that I have there in the field of artists. It's it's overwhelming. We've just launched this notion about a writer's trail and, uh, you know, how we can help communities grow their creative assets and creative placemaking, and there's just lots of good work to be done, and uh, you know, in spite of being first on every list, we want to be last on, last on every list, we want to be first on. Mississippi has so much potential. We have great assets, and they are mostly creative, and I'm happy to represent that.
1: Malcolm, thank you so much for taking time to come in today. I loved it, and thank you for all you do to make Jackson and Mississippi a better place to live. Ditto. Appreciate it. And, of course, want to thank our guest today, Executive Director of Mississippi Arts Commission, Malcolm White. And also want to thank, of course, the incredible Michelle McAdoo for producing the show. Stay tuned for Southern Remedy. It was coming up next. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey, and we will see you all next Monday.